Welcome to your December 2009 edition of Voices of Experience, where our theme this year is Imagine. I'm your host, Jarrett Bro. As 2009 draws to a close and we look ahead to 2010, what do you imagine your speaking career will look like in the future? Do you dream of being a star in the global stage? Or will you become a prophet in your own hometown? This month, we'll study the extremes as we look at speakers on both ends of the spectrum. Get ready to open your mind, NSA, on Voices of Experience. All that I ask is that you stay open to changing your life by changing your mind one day at a time. Open your mind. Earl Nightingale and Zig Ziglar are just two of the speaking pioneers who have influenced so many of us in the speaking business. This month on Voices of Experience, you'll hear their names evoked again, beginning with our first guest, who imagined that someday he could be an Earl Nightingale, working all around the world. Join us backstage with Joaquin de Posada. My business model is looking at the whole world as my territory. Uh, I believe that uh, that speakers can be much more successful if they if they look at their business with the opportunities of six thousand million six billion people in the planet versus uh, three hundred million in the states or England or English speaking countries. Uh, so uh, I was very lucky that I uh, when I was nineteen years old I came in contact with a tape. I think it was called the strangest secret by Earl Nightingale. And that uh, tape, which I la later found out that was probably one of the most sold motivational tapes in history, maybe even still is, I don't know. But that tape inspired me, and I said, you know what, since I was living in Puerto Rico, I said, I would like to be that guy, but obviously in Spanish uh, and in Latin America. So my focus was, how do I become a type of Earl Nightingale in Puerto Rico and Latin America? And that, of course, made me uh, leave my, uh, my, my psychology, psychology practice where I had many patients and uh, I started looking at opportunities to speak to families of patients and to Kiwanis Club and Rotary Club or whatever. And until one day I was asked uh, by a person that went to one of my talks, do you do this for companies? I said, do you know, he said, do you know our sales? And I, asked, I, I it was a very stupid answer what I, what I answered. I said, no, I don't know how to sell. <laughs> <laughs> and when we are all in sales, right? <laughs> so anyway, uh, he said, well, uh, if you do what you did here today, to my people in sales, I would hire you. He gave me his card, and I saw that was a big company. And when I asked him, how many people would you like to put through this uh, program? And he said, 500. I said, I'll call you in a few weeks. So I went to my broker in Mary Lynch, and I asked her, what are the three best companies in the world in sales? And she said, I got, well, I don't know. Let me find out. When we, when, when we got together again a few days later, she said, I have three names, Xerox, IBM, Procter & Gamble. So I went to Xerox first, and I met with them, and I offered them my services as a psychologist. And if they would teach me sales, if they would teach me sales, and they, we started uh, negotiating. And finally, what was supposed to be a one month, I will come here and I will do psychological profiling. I will do uh, team building. I will make your people work harder. I will identify who has leadership potential, and then you will teach me sales. And we will not pay each other. It's going to be an even exchange. That became a uh, a, a, a 
a thing where they, they hired me to work with their people. And what was one year became about 10 years. And that's where I learned my, my industrial psychology part of me. What part does you, both your Latin heritage and your command of another language give you? What advantage does that give you in the market? Well, I must be truthful with you and tell you that it is a it is an advantage. It is a competitive advantage. When Colombia, when uh, Venezuela or, or Peru or Chile or Uruguay or Argentina or any of the Latin American countries when they're asking for a speaker and that, uh, from the United States and that speaker has command of the Spanish language and has the same knowledge or know-how of the American speakers, you have, you have a competitive advantage. But I also must want to be fair to all these uh, very competent and nice speakers that we have in NSA that 80% of the people that will hire you in Latin America understand that you will do it in English because most of them will speak English. And those that don't, will they will arrange for simultaneous translation. What has been your key to getting the global reach? Right now is the best time in history where you can have global reach at practically no money. We have now the internet. We have the internet. We have, uh, uh, you have a good website. Uh, in my website, I have Spanish and English, but you have Facebook, you have LinkedIn, you have all the social media. Uh, that's getting bigger. Right now, you can uh, uh, reach people all over the world and you can be seen. And that never happened before. In the old times, I had to find an agent in each country, and that agent had to represent me. Okay, I still have agents in different countries, but uh, that's because I choose to work with someone in a country that can handle the calls and can handle the, uh, the, the speaking engagements. And then when they get back to me, it's already uh, you know, very close to being a done deal. Many speakers and voices of experience over the year have talked about price integrity, the idea that everyone pays the same amount. However, in certain parts of the world, uh, there is a different culture as to how they want to negotiate the price. I find when I speak in Asia, for example, they always want to negotiate price. And uh, what has been your experience over the years of pricing internationally uh, and maintaining price integrity, or do you have multiple pricing based on the nation and the economics of the nation? Well, I'm in this business because I love what I do, and I'm in this business because I love to help people. That's my number one concern. I make more money in royalties than what I need to live. And I could speak for free my whole life and, and, and be able to continue living because I have made that much money in, in book royalties and book advances. But I want to help people. So I have a different price for, for Europe, US, Asia, Latin America, Central America. If I'm, uh, if I'm hired to speak in Honduras, okay, that's a poor country they cannot afford the fee that they pay uh, speakers here. And I want to help them out. So I will come down to a point where, where it will be affordable for them. And then I will be able to sell my books after my session, and I'll sell a lot of books, and uh, I will do well. But the main thing is that I help them when they needed my help. Uh, how are you? How amazed are you about book sales around the world and how it's made you perhaps popular in some rather bizarre places, yes. Korea, for example. Exactly. Korea and China, those were the two places where they sold the most books. Absolutely. I was totally amazed. I mean, I mean, uh, sometimes when things like this happen, you, uh, you start thinking, you know, 
I did not plan for this. And everything you read is you have to make a plan, follow your work, your plan, and then you get a result. Well, you know what? There's a factor. I call it the X factor that doesn't need any plan. And that X factor, some people call it luck. Some people call it destiny. And the X factor sometimes hits. And you got to be prepared when it hits. And here I was, you know, uh, with a book. And uh, suddenly my publisher, uh, I mentioned that I wanted my book to be shown in Frankfurt. And they took the, the book to Frankfurt. And there it was bought by 15 different languages. And it became worldwide bestseller. It was a total surprise. I did not plan anything. What is the future of uh, of the Latin market, both in the U.S., where National Speakers Association is based, as well as the globe. I know here in the U.S. we're seeing a substantial increase in the Latin and Hispanic populations. What's the future of that market for those who have the skill sets of multiple languages and command of, of Spanish? Yes, absolutely. It's now uh, more uh, needed than ever. They're, they're around... Counting legals and illegals, about 45 million Hispanics in the U.S. is the, first, is the second minority in the whole country. By 2015, it might be 25, 30% of the country. So it's a good opportunity to learn two languages. I mean, I know the mindset. I know the mindset that says, you know what? If you come to America, you talk or speak English. You know, that's the wrong mindset because in Swiss, in Switzerland, they speak four languages. In Germany, they speak many languages. I mean, everywhere people understand that in the world that we're in now, you need to speak several languages. So I think that I would tell people, you know what, since you're in the U.S. and there's some, such a big Latin community, learn Spanish. And when you can go to Latin companies or to Latin associations and there's and it's a person that speaks the language, he gets a competitive advantage over, over anybody else because it's rare that you can find a speaker that will do the program in Spanish. It's interesting because I've heard so many speakers that we've interviewed for Voices Experience say, do what the competition won't do. This is probably one more example of that. That's absolutely right. In fact, in my speeches, I have one principle, which is one of the, is the ones that I uh, cover in my speeches, is successful people are willing to do things that unsuccessful people are not willing to do. And su successful mothers are willing to do things that unsuccessful mothers are not willing to do. Successful speakers are willing to do things that unsuccessful speakers are not willing to do. And successful speakers will do this type of thing. I know of a guy that was invited to Japan, and he does not speak Japanese. And he memorized, by memory, a one-hour Japanese speech. And he delivered it in Japanese. He doesn't know still to this day speak Japanese. He just phonetically memorized it. And he blew the, 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 the place down. What's the future for you? The future for me is continually continue to uh, focus on the whole world, go to, to uh, continue getting another book out. After the one that he sold 2 million copies, another one came out and he sold 500,000 copies. I will have to do another one, a sequel to that one, so I'm working on that. And I will try to get more in touch with technology so that I can reach more people through the wonders of technology. I think that you can do webinars, you can do teleseminars, you can do a lot of stuff. I think I'm going to go in that direction, but I will not let go of my speaking opportunities because that's what I like to do. On the opposite side of the speaking spectrum is the lady we are about to meet. As Joe Calloway joins us again for his segment, A Category of One, 
Joe, you found a speaker who got into this business early and she decided to keep her business close to home. Yeah, I'm talking with Laura Stack, and here's the thing about Laura that that I think really makes her stand out. It makes her a Category 1. She decided how she wanted to do this business, and she made it happen that way. Uh, She carved out uh, her space where she wanted to, the way she wanted to. And to me, she is the ultimate example of somebody that has done this business on their own terms. Let's talk to her. Well, for me, it was a lot of friendship building with my clients. My my clients are my buddies. Many of them, uh, we know their kids, we go to their birthday parties, we, we have dinner. Being in your local market and being very active um, makes you kind of a little mini celebrity in a way if you position it correctly. I'm on the radio all the time, television, a lot of the print in my local market. And I can get in the car and drive out and go see someone face-to-face. So I have, for example, been very focused on the Denver market, where I live. And you hear so many people say, oh, you can't be a prophet in your own land. Baloney. I got my CSP in Denver. I barely traveled at all when my children were small. And yeah, that's a choice you make. I discounted my fees quite drastically and I did end up working more, doing more dates, but I wanted to be at home with my kids. And so the strategy that I used really was shaped by my values, by my priorities, and what I was trying to use this business for to help me create a life instead of the other way around. So I've been able to develop relationships because of that that otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do. And people who know me and like me introduce me to other people who know me and like me. And I think we're so focused on trying to get these big, you know, national stages and big conventions that many of us fail to just look around in our own cities and see the huge companies that are there and look at all of the opportunity right in your own backyards. You know, you talk about your family and how important that is to you and keeping balance in your life. Is it different for women in this business? (laughs) I would have to say it probably is. I, I think... Unfortunately, there are still a lot of stereotypes that go along with the, you know, the working mom, the woman as speaker. You know, there still are a lot more, you know, males on the larger platforms than there are females. And so I think you do battle that. Uh, Some people that say, well, you know, we don't want a woman or we're looking for a man. And, And so I do think that because I'm a Gen Xer, I'm young, I'll be 40 this year on June 2nd. Um, that people look at me and they think, you know, you're, you're young. How, how can you have this much credibility? How do you, what do you know? You know, I do think we have to prove ourselves a little bit more. I think there's a little bit of judgment uh, that comes in when I'm off, you know, in another city. And I people know I have three kids and they're all kind of going, well, gee, why aren't you home with your kids? You know, so there is that kind of shift. And I do address it when I first start speaking in my audiences that we work at our home. My husband is a partner. He's at home. He works for our, in our company and he stays home with the kids and you know so you kind of have to let people go oh okay she's not neglecting her children (laughs) you know that this is just a little bit of a different role it is hard for people to accept that reversal I believe you got into this business 
at a really early age, I mean, kind of right out of school. So how did that happen? Yeah, I was 23 uh, when I started my company. And actually, I'm one of the ones who always knew I wanted to be a professional speaker. I was 14 when I saw Zig Ziglar. And I said, that is what I want to do. I told my mama and I said, um, I've decided I'm going to be a professional speaker. She didn't know what that was. I told her I was going to talk for a living. She said, that's great if they'll pay you. And I, everything I did, all my college courses, all my curriculum was focused on business. My undergrad was in marketing. I have a, a, a master's in business. I knew I was going to need the skill to run my own company. I taught some uh, undergraduate uh, courses at the university as an adjunct professor after I got my MBA. I did some uh, corporate training for TRW Defense Systems. I did a little bit with career track, and then I hung up my shingle and did my own thing. It's always been something that is uh, in my soul. I, I tried to dance. I, my legs weren't long enough. I tried to sing. I wasn't a good enough singer. I tried to act. My acting coach told me, find something else. This, to me, is a way that I can give people uh, a gift, a little song, a little dance, you know, and, and it's uh, it's entertaining for me, for them, but to also be able to, to change lives. I just, I love at the end of the speeches, you know, the emails and the cards and the, the thanks you get afterward. You know, especially a week later, two weeks, a month later, saying, you really changed my life in this area, and this is what you've impacted in me. And um, that's incredibly motivating and really what keeps me going. So you're 14 years old. You're sitting in the audience. Zig Ziglar's on stage. What was it about that that just made something click for you? Oh, my gosh. You know how he does that thing where he gets down on his knee and he pumps his arm like that? And I just felt this, oh, you get this adrenaline surge. And I remember just feeling so fired up uh, when I left and saying, yes, and I can do all these things. And I thought, what a gift to be able to give someone that that inspiration. You know, I watched him, and I don't believe he motivated me, but he did something in me that I felt motivated and inspired. And so I knew that that was the the same feeling that I wanted to, to give other people. It was such a gift. What have you done that didn't work? That didn't work? Yeah, have you, have, I mean, have there, oh, have there been you're things make that, me tell secrets here. Have there been things that you've tried that it's just, or let me just ask sure. you this, have you tried things that didn't work? You know, I think the things that really impacted me negatively in my career had to do when I was really off purpose, when I was really off focus, when I said, okay, well, I'm not going to just do productivity. You know, when a client gets to know you and likes you, they start saying things like, well, you know, can you come? teach a customer service class, you know, and Joe's the best at that, but Laura's going to try it. Mm, it. It just doesn't always work, you know, and I'll tell people, I can give you a 101 kind of class in customer service, but if you really want the expert, I am not the right person for you. So I think those engagements that I knew in my mind I should turn down that I took were the ones that really affected my reputation in the end. So the more that I am true to myself, to my brand, to my message, and I'm authentic, the more successful I've been. What would you say to the speaker uh, that would say, yeah, but I need to get as much business as I can right now, so shouldn't I have as many different, you know, quote-unquote, topics as possible? Mm. 
Do you think that's ultimately a a mistake? Not necessarily. I mean, I started out with career track where they would throw you a manual and set of slides overheads at at that point and say, here, be in Tallahassee tomorrow and teach this class on supervisory skills. So I I definitely think there's a market where if I have $500 and I need just a level 101 class and you go to the library and do that class, I think there's a service in doing that. And I think certainly when you're starting out, we've all gone through that where we say, can you do a speech in anger management? Sure. Oh, crap. You go to the library, you research it, and you give it. I think everyone kind of becomes, is that generalist um, at first. But the ones who really ultimately make it is the one, are the ones who figure out what they're really good at, what their passion is, and manage to use that to kind of get narrower and narrower and more niched. And when I really started focusing in on the productivity aspect, which was the piece that I loved, that's really where my career took off. You've talked about not just speaking, but but getting your message out lots of different ways. You've had some really good success as an author. How important has that been in your career? Well, let's see. The book, first book came out in 2004, and my income has risen exponentially each year since then. Uh, it, was, it wasn't bad before, but it's really where I it, saw it shoot up and uh, become a very nice living. I think the books were a way of me kind of getting the brand out to a wider audience in a way that I wasn't able to do before. And having the books out there internationally and seven foreign translations, you know, it's it finally got uh, to just a mass uh, uh, where people now who would never have heard of me could finally hear of me. And so I think that there was a lot of a lot of power in the the publishing piece of my career. You know, you hear people uh, in this business say, you've got to have a book, you've got to have a book. But. I know you put a lot of effort into not just having a book. You wrote a really good book. Yes. Uh, yeah, and, and I think that's a really important point, Joe, actually, because I see a lot of speakers right now who are just saying, just get it out, just write something, just put it out, whoever will take it, just get it out there. I was in business for 12 years before I ever felt like I had something that was worthy enough to be put into a book and into the published word. And when Leave the Office Earlier came out, it was immediately a bestseller. It was the best. It's still, to this day, the first book I wrote is still the best-selling one of all of them because I felt like I finally had enough where it was just bursting out of me, you know, and you really have to feel uh, that passion. But then the trick is coming up with the next concept, the next concept, the next concept, and really continuing to write, you know, and that's uh, that's a discipline that's been very key. Uh, for me, I go on I go on writing retreats. Uh, one of my mentors is uh, Diana Boer, and she always told me, "Go away." I, I check into a hotel on a Friday night. I check out on a Sunday. Uh, I barely sleep, or you know, I, I just bang out text for a weekend and two, three, four, five of those, and pretty soon you've got a pretty nice manuscript. So it takes a lot of focus for sure. What are your biggest challenges right now? Challenges for me are just um, keeping it interesting, keeping it fun. Uh, You know, sometimes I just get this nagging sense of boredom, just 
this kind of dissatisfaction, you know, that if I have to hear myself tell that story again, I'm going to puke, you know. And those are the times where I know I'm not good, and I certainly don't want the audience to, you know, feel that, even if they can't really tell. I do think they can kind of subtly tell in my the, my mannerisms, my behavior. You know, I don't want to fake it. So for me, it's challenging myself, um, shaking it up, getting new research, interviewing people, trying new things new technologies. We've got a video podcast now and an audio podcast. And how do you hook it up with iTunes and getting into social media? So for me, the, the keeping up with all of the things is part of the excitement of the business. And I've seen so many people who just, it's kind of a drag. It gets kind of boring after a while. Do you think that's a easy trap for speakers to fall into and a dangerous trap because they say, well, I don't want to mess with what I'm doing because it works. Sure. You can get caught in the trap of doing something that you're really good at. Absolutely. And, you know, you can have a signature story that you've been telling forever, and maybe you decide, what if I didn't tell that story? And I'm going to throw it out. And I've had a lot of people that have said, you know, I threw it out for a while, but I realized that's one story I can keep. So I'm not saying don't ever do anything that's you or that works or your clients say, you've got to come tell that one story. But just in your business and the way you spend your time, if it's so rote and so boring that, you know, oh, I got to get on another plane, you know, so you have to find those pieces of it that are going to make it interesting for you. If a speaker came up to you and said, based on your 17 years in the business, having built a successful career, what's the one thing that you would tell me in terms of advice, career advice? Hmm. What would you say? I would say get some great people to come alongside of you. I have been really fortunate to have some sponsors, I suppose would be the right word, who I was able to link up with. Daytimer uh, created a planner that I designed for handheld users. You know, I've been on QVC and I've gotten on a lot of media, CBS Early Show. I've done a media tour for uh, 3M. I, I did a big promotion for Xerox. You know, I really have looked at what's my message, speed and efficiency and productivity and who else has that and where's that synergy, you know, and how does what I say resonate with their message? And who do I speak to that they want to be in front of? Uh, I did a big program uh, for Microsoft. And I, I've just found that when I, you know, when I did something like that and you go out and you've got a big Microsoft banner behind you, you know, you've got a lot of clout and a lot of power that I otherwise wouldn't have been able to get simply calling the meeting planner and saying, hi, Laura Stack wants to speak with you. You know, when you've got the support, the backing and the dollars of a big sponsor. And I really wish I would have started that a lot sooner. What was the flashpoint, or when did the light bulb just explode over your head and you thought, wait a minute, the Productivity Pro, that's it? Was was there a moment? That is a great question. I actually kept an old name of my company. When I first started out, I was uh, Celebration Presentations, and then I went to uh, Peak Productivity, and I've, I couldn't quite get it. And it actually was eight years into my career, actually, when my husband started coming to work for the company. John actually created the name, the Productivity Pro, and, and it's because I was dancing around being efficient one day and saying, whoa, I'm just messing around. And he goes, you put the pro in productivity. I will never forget that. And I just went, that is so clever. He goes, yeah, you are the Productivity Pro. It just, and I went, oh, that's 
it. And right then we trademarked it, changed the name of my company. It was just instantaneously I knew. So John is my hero for coming up with that. It's stuck ever since. And I was saying it in a kind of a funny, loving, joking kind of way, but I thought that's who I am. And it, that's a good point, too, because it is who I am. It is very authentic. It's me. You know, I, I did three years of high school. I did my undergrad in two and a half years. I had my MBA when I was 21. This is how I am and who I am. I'm fascinated by performance and focus and speed. And, and I just think the whole science and the art of productivity is fascinating. You know, and so when you really carry who you are and your love of your, your topic into your work and onto the stage, I think people see that and they want that and they go, wow. She's the real deal, and she can really teach me something. So I don't know that it matters how old I am or what my gender is when you really can show people that you walk your talk. This month on Ones to Watch, Jane Atkinson is joining us, and your guest is Vince Pacenti. And what's different about Vince out of everybody else that we're showing in this segment is Vince is somebody who has already reached a significantly high status. Yet you found it interesting that he is one to watch still and one to watch again. Tell me why. Well, you know, a lot of people might see Vince on the main stage and think that uh, he's made it. but and, and he has in certain flashpoints in his career. But he didn't land on the top of the mountain. He really worked his way up. And he will continue to find new mountains. So his book, The Age of Speed, hit the New York Times bestseller list. And there's a lot of different things that he continues to do even after 10 years in the business. And that's why I think he's a terrific one to watch. Vince, tell us about your first years in the business. Oh, man. the It's funny because I, I ignored the speaking business for 18 months after the Olympics. The, my exit strategy was win the, win the gold medal and then go to the uh, be a professional speaker. Placing 15th, that didn't happen. And it was such a physical, emotional... I maybe even spiritual draining, you know, that uh, I was done. I might have uh, I might have gone through something called post Olympic depression, you know, this this uh, feeling like uh, even not worthy or something like that. And I only placed fifteenth in the Olympics. I was just in this mess, quagmire, and then. Um, Finally, did due diligence, checked out, found out about the National Speakers Association and CAPS, Canadian Association, professional speakers, and uh, and then realized I had to go through the wall of fire again and uh, quit my job. And um, first year, I think I had one paid gig. <laughs> and then it was it was the next year I think too I doubled my business you know and it was just year after year it was hard it was really really hard but now looking back I think well you know it's it was worth it that was what needed to happen in order for you to get where you yeah. needed to go and and over the course of uh, time you've hit various flashpoints, which is actually your word. We've been using it this whole season on VOE. Thank you. Uh, you've hit various flashpoints in your career where it's catapulted to the next level. Well, what are one or two of those, and what would you attribute those to? 
Well, let me let me say that the the hard stuff is the pay your dues section, and it's a classic business S curve where you pay your dues, and then Flashpoint is where things just change overnight, uh, and a bunch of things. Listening to Joel Weldon talk about you language, about taking a personal story and saying this happened to me, and then I did this, and then I did that, and then saying you're standing on the side of a 42 degree slope, you're about to go zero to 60 miles an hour in three seconds, and you're going to go 125 miles an hour in eight seconds, completely changed the experience of the audience. And when he changed the experience of the audience, they tell other people. <laughs> and imagine that, mm -hmm. you know, you've got 400 people in the audience become your ambassadors. And so that clearly was a, a flashpoint. Absolutely. Turning it around, making it about them. I remember Art Berg was also a master at that, and you right. and I talked to him right. about right. why his career had taken off, and he said he, he made it about them. Tough he thing also, to do. He also told me something. We, we were going to debrief. We were in Hawaii, and he was I was on before him, and he did his thing at Art Berg, and, and then he did this, finished, and we debriefed. And I said, you know what was missing was something prescriptive, the three steps towards what you did. And he said, oh, that's not my job. <laughs> <laughs> he, said, he said that uh, my job is to give them an experience because they'll never forget an experience. And so we, if you can adapt that and say, well, the tip of the spear is the experience, and then you can Velcro content to it. I think we get uh, seduced into this notion in this business, our job is to dump content on the audience. Mm. And it's not a bucket of content. Uh, so if you put it into context, does the story provide an experience? And with you language, does that bring them into it? And then can you take content and, and Velcro that in? And then it becomes this package where people walk away moved and it becomes internalized. Now, it may sound a little foo-foo here, but it's not about them going, oh, this is Vince's material. It's about them wandering through life with material they got. They don't know how or where they got it from, but they're enriched by a character trait or they're enriched by how they do things differently. And uh, that's a life well lived in this business. You know, it's interesting. We always say, you know, they're not going to remember leadership point number three. But I bet you any money they'll remember the story about you and your dad. Right. You know, your dad talking on the phone and saying what a memorable experience the Olympics provided for him. Right. And, of course, everybody who's had a dad yeah. gets a little bit weepy. That's the goofy thing about this business. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we get hired. They want to know what are the benefits. Give me all the benefits. Don't tell me about the features of how great you are, what you did at USA Today or any of that. Yeah. What are the five things they're going to walk away with? And inevitably, when somebody comes up after a presentation, they go, you know what I got? What about your dad? <laughs> So. Yeah, it's crazy. It is, it, 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 but they wouldn't hire you if it wasn't for that story. So it's, it's a, a package. It's yeah. a it's a package deal. Yeah. So you've hit various flashpoints along the way, and you went to a new one last year. I think it was when you mm -hmm. had a book hit the best selling list of the New York Times. Yeah. So how did you get there? I was probably about 10 years into the business, and I was really searching for a word I could own, a unique value proposition. And it was really tough to find. I mean, I, I was a speed skier in the Olympics. I went from recreational skier to the Olympics in four years. And, uh, and then 
it took months to figure out that my unique value proposition <laughs> was speed, in Duh. fact. <laughs> I, uh, and so all of a sudden I figured it out. And then it was it was like, well, then what is it about speed? And then all of a sudden, if you're, you're, you're listening to this and you want some take home, uh, you know, if it can be counterintuitive or innovative, people are going to re- resonate with that. And in a world where everybody wants to slow down, the idea behind the whole speed concept was it's a good thing. It's not to be vilified. That if we figure out how to accelerate some areas, we'll be able to slow down in others. So speeding up, much like pedaling on a bicycle, when you speed up, you get control and balance. And so that was the concept, and, uh, and it was successful with the book. And how did that then... Uh take your career to the next level on the speaking front? Being on the New York Times bestselling list is just one of those resume items that adds credibility. And uh, I remember losing engagements to people that weren't. uh, They said, well, we want somebody that's a New York Times bestselling author. Mm -hmm. So I was able to raise the fee yet again. And so being that another echelon of that almost celebrity status. (laughs) (laughs) And... uh, but very interesting. This economy has um, has been very challenging, and I've actually cut my fee in half for for the time being. I mean, it's it's um, you could shoot a cannon through my calendar right now. It's it's tough. You know, the people in your price range, the mm-hmm. non celebrity speakers over a certain level, mm-hmm. were the hardest hit. Right. So. You you did a pretty brave thing by cutting your fee in half. Right. How did you come to that decision? We do this because we want to make an impact on people's lives. And the feeling that I get personally from doing a free engagement versus a paid is is there's no difference. So, and it's still a lot of money. Uh, so, it was a, actually a very simple decision because times are tough. Um, why don't we share the burden of how hard this is, myself and clients, mm-hmm. and uh, see if we can make the most of it? And so uh, it's also, yeah, I think listeners will relate to what I'm going through is my confidence has been shaken a little bit. I'm thinking, well, am I doing something wrong? Am I, have I lost it? Am I irrelevant? And, you know. And so I'm faced with, should I reinvent? Should I be something different? And I'm wandering through that right now. So as you're listening, I don't know when this is going to be replayed. I might have reinvented myself, or I might be back better than ever. I don't know. I'm just uh, trying to have as much fun and be as curious as I possibly can. And a tip of the hat to you, Jane, for presenting an outstanding program at our just-completed fall conference. And with the fall conference behind us, now is the time to sign up for your next NSA learning event. The winter conference is February 12th through 14th in Nashville, Tennessee, Joe Calloway's hometown. Get more details and register by visiting nsaspeaker.com. Remember, every conference and convention promises to build your business just a little more to give you a competitive edge. And for our USA NSA members, a big incentive is to register today so your registration can become a 2009 tax deduction. It's time now for our offstage segment with Renee Godefroy. Renee didn't have to look too far this month 
He found a fellow speaker in his own Atlanta chapter who is making a big difference offstage. That's right. Martha Lanier learned she had breast cancer more than a year ago. Now that she has been a survivor for more than a year, she is devoting her time and talents off stage toward the fight against breast cancer where she lives in Atlanta. I met so many incredible absolutely incredible women when I was diagnosed who were breast cancer survivors and they never hesitated in sharing with me and that's something I just pass on. I am honored that someone would consider calling me and want to talk to me about it. I, I think it's the greatest thing that we can do is share. How do you suggest our speakers, we can sometimes definitely put our business to the side and make a difference off stage. Any suggestion for our speakers? I say use your expertise. That's our business is to talk about our expertise. And that doesn't mean just on the platform. It means that we can take it off the platform too. For example, I'll be speaking Sunday to a large group of walkers. It's the Atlanta two-day walk for breast cancer. They raise over a million dollars. And to be able to speak to that many women, pump them up, and as a breast cancer survivor, a one-year survivor, my two daughters and I are going to lead the walk. And just to see them smile and walk for such a great cause, that's something as a speaker because I am a speaker, I was asked to open the ceremony. And, oh, what an honor and a privilege to be able to do that in front of these incredible women. Tell me more about the event where you're going to pump up the 1,000 people. How did that come about? Last year was my first year walking in the 30-mile walk. We walked 20 miles on one day and 10 the following day. And... I was asked to speak at the closing ceremony last year, which what a privilege and an honor to be able to do that, because that was the first year I had walked. And then this year, I was asked to speak at the opening ceremonies for the second day for Sunday morning. And they were looking for someone with a lot of energy who would pump up these women and get them out on the road and uh, kick it off. And I was thrilled again to be asked to do that. So what I'll do is, is lead the walkers, have them all pumped up, and we will show Atlanta what women have to do to fight breast cancer. This is not a paid gig. Oh, no. What, what does it mean to you? Oh, it means everything to me to see that many women who, and men, are, are there as well, walkers. And they're supporters. Some of them have never been diagnosed with breast cancer. They do it because they want to. And then we have survivors and family members. And it, it is such power in a group like that when they are all working together for the same cause and it is unbelievable kickoff with the motorcade and policemen stop traffic. And when you see that many women come out wearing pink, yeah, we make a difference. We make a difference. Together, we are spreading the word about breast cancer. You are now speaking to nonprofit groups. You have a book, Pink Lemonade. Why did you write the book? I wrote the book because... I wrote down all of the tips that I was learning firsthand, and I believed that other women would be able to benefit from that. 
we all are given lemons in our life. It's how we handle them that makes the difference. And so when I realized some of the things I was experiencing, I felt that I had turned my lemons into lemonade. And then in honor of all breast cancer survivors, I decided to name it Pink Lemonade. And uh, the feedback you're getting from women are phenomenal from people who are reading it? They have thoroughly enjoyed the tips. Even my breast surgeon wrote the foreword for the book, and when he read the manuscript initially, when he gave it back to me, he said, oh, man, I had no idea some of the things that you included in your book meant that much. He said, as a surgeon, we don't always see those same things. So he said he felt the book was way overdue and that it is for not just for breast cancer survivors, but also friends and relatives, but also other people in the medical field to learn from a patient's perspective what they're going through, all of the emotions and physical needs with being diagnosed with breast cancer. Any final thoughts for VOE listeners? Having breast cancer and surviving gave me an opportunity to slow down, to reevaluate what direction I'm going in career-wise and personally. I now value more than ever the time that I have with my husband, with my children, with our seven grandchildren. My priorities have totally changed. And I really feel I'm a better speaker for it, and I'm a better coach for it. Just by living the experience. As speakers, we all have experiences, and that's the value that we have to share with other people. It's time again to get your to-do list ready. Our panel of experts is back, and they've got a new list of little steps that you can take to advance your product development, social media, writing, and business strategy as we break big tasks into little actionable items each month on If You Could Do Just One Thing This Month. Hi, this is Bill Cates. If there's one thing you could do this month to create multiple streams of income, it would be to develop licensing deals with large corporations and associations. You may recall that in my last segment of Voices of Experience, I discussed the whys and hows of developing a video-based training program. Not only can you sell the DVDs, facilitators guides, and course materials, you can also strike licensing arrangements where your clients are given permission for a specified time to train all of their employees or a subset of their employees in your wonderful system. With a video-driven program, you provide them with all the masters of the DVDs, workbooks, etc., and they do all the duplication. Therefore, your cost of sale approaches zero. It's about as close to legally printing money as I've been able to come. It's important to have a good legal agreement in place so all parties are clear as to what is being purchased, for how long, for what amount, and what happens when the licensing arrangement expires. What about pricing, you may ask? Well, the truth is, it's a what-the-market-will-bear scenario. Every licensing deal I've ever entered into has been a negotiation. I often try to determine how many people they plan on running through the program during a year's time. Then we determine what they are willing to invest in training each participant in my system. Multiply that by the estimated number of people and you have a portion of your licensing fee. However, that may not be all of your licensing fee. For instance, you may give them the right, for a specified time frame, to use portions of your system in other ways. Of course, you should be compensated for that as well. It's common practice to give your client a slight discount if they sign a multi-year agreement, especially if they pay it all up front, which has happened to me several times. 
There is no one way to structure a licensing agreement. If you'd like to receive a template for one of my typical agreements, then send me an email with the words licensing template in the subject line, and I'll send it to you as quickly as I can. My email address is billcates at referralcoach.com. That's Bill Cates, not Bill Gates, we wish, at referralcoach.com. So that's your primer on licensing agreements. In the next issue of Voices of Experience, I'm going to talk to you about setting up a coaching program. This has been Bill Cates. Thanks for listening. Now go do something that produces a result. I'm Chris Clark Epstein, and it's time to talk about writing. What kind of writing do you want to do? Most speakers I've encountered start their writing journey with the I need to write a book comment. What a daunting proclamation. That's akin to announcing after your first paid speech that you'd like to do a million dollar roundtable presentation next. You could, of course, but it probably wouldn't be your best showing. Writing's like that too. If you're not comfortable with your writing ability, don't have a track record of successful writing projects, haven't ever worked with a tough editor, a book isn't your best starting point. The cool thing is you have so many other possibilities that can give you benefit while marching you closer to your ultimate goal, a book. If I've done my job right, I don't even need to say it because it's at your side. Pull out your notebook. On a clear page, start a list of all the things you are already writing, plus those you could be writing. Emails to friends, families, and clients about your travel adventures, blog posts, articles for your website. Suggestion, if you're building a writing library and want to explore how writing for the web has its own set of evolving rules, check out the Huffington Post Complete Guide to Blogging by the editors of the Huffington Post. Reading how they've created a whole new form of newspaper is a good and insightful read. Back to our list, there are articles for your newsletter, articles for your client's newsletter, articles for your client's website, articles for magazines, essays about life, essays about your subject area, letters to the editor, a book. Hey, Chris, stop. This isn't your assignment. You're giving away all the answers. Make this list as long as you possibly can. Then go back over your list and make a note of how each of the possibilities could help your business. If you can't see how any one of the ideas could be turned into an expertise asset for your business, think of a speaker buddy who's doing it and give them a call. Most importantly, think how you could work on the smaller, shorter features and turn them into bigger, more significant projects with profit potential. How many blog entries does it take to make a book? Since only writing will make you a better writer, commit to writing pieces in all of the categories you've identified, looking for the ones that you enjoy the most. Then get creative and figure out how you can ride the form you like the most into the big prize, a book. It's been terrific spending this time with you. I'd love to hear how your writing skills and attitudes are being shaped by these segments. Drop me an email at chris at change101.com. I'll write you back. Hi, Ford Sakes here, and I've been asked to share quick strategy segments for VOE on how you can monetize your social media networking efforts to grow your business. This issue, we're going to take a look at the connection of the social media sites and your own website. Now, as professional speakers, you already know the importance of having a website that attracts attention and communicates value. I know that you want people to subscribe to your lists, you want them to book you to speak, and you want them to buy your products and services. You want more traffic, right? Well, the social media sites can be a great way to connect with new groups of people in unique and different ways than you ever thought possible. Now, what will they see when they come to your regular website? 
Will they be impressed and want to connect with you? Or will they be lost in a cluttered mess of confusing layouts, poor navigation, and content that's frankly a cure for insomnia? Now, while there are several strategies and beliefs that you should abandon your regular website now and just focus on third-party sites like the social media sites like LinkedIn and Facebook to connect with your prospects and customers, I'd highly advise against it. Now, today's Facebook was yesterday's MySpace. Google is king for now, but I wouldn't count out Bing yet. We're still in the infancy stages of many of these sites, and many people are clamoring to claim their space and figure it all out. So think about it. Why would you put your business and career 100% in the hands of a third-party website? You wouldn't. It just doesn't make good sense. So what's the one thing you can do this month? Go back and look at your website through the eyes of a prospect. Is it clear what you should do? Is the focus around you and are you clear what the purpose of your website is to be beneficial to the user? And you got to remember, they don't really care about you until they know the benefits and the problems that you solve that they will pay to make go away. Now, do you have great copy that's compelling and solution-oriented action steps on every single page? Now, get your site in shape through the eyes of your prospect and make sure it's designed from a marketing and sales perspective and it's not just pretty. And if you know that your site already sucks and you're ignoring it, what's the point of driving traffic to it just so it can become a sales prevention tool? As you plan your site's makeover, remember to add links to connect with your top social media sites. For examples of this, check out the footer on sites like primeconcepts.com or my colleague randygage.com. There are several ways to syndicate your content automatically, and we'll explore those in future issues of VOE. Okay, that's all we have time for now. This is Ford Sakes reminding you to take action every day on your outbound marketing efforts. Goal setting, goal setting. I want to set some goals today. I want to set some goals. <laughs> Sorry. Hello. Mike Rayburn here again. Uh, and to all my friends there in Speakerland, let's be honest. There are so many of us who teach goal setting that I realize the potential preposterousness of a goofy guitar player thinking he might have something to share in this category. But I do. You see, goal setting is all well and good, but it's not half as fun as goal achieving. Ah, there's the rub. Well, over the years, I have learned three simple tools which I find amazingly helpful in actually accomplishing the goals I've set, and here they are. Number one, take your top three life goals, long-term, big goals, and be able to say or write them down in the exact same wording every time, in 30 seconds or less. This is your 30-second list. Could you do that right now if I asked you and hit the stopwatch? Why? If you know those goals so well and they're so imprinted on your mind that it takes you nothing to repeat them from memory, that means your subconscious is going to work on them 24-7 and be prepared for big things to happen. Develop a 30-second list. Number two, develop a top 10 list of goals. It may be goals for this year. It may be include your 30-second list, whatever you want, and then wake up in the morning and write them down every day, all 10 every day. It'll take you about five minutes. But what you're doing is focusing your brain and subconscious to work on those goals every day. Third and finally, write your goals as if they've already come true. If your goal is to have 50 full feet keynotes this year, don't write, I will do 50 full feet keynotes in 2009 because I will 
means it's always in the future. Your subconscious only hears and works in the present. Instead, write, I have 50 full feet keynotes in 2009. If you tell it you have something and you don't yet, your subconscious has to reconcile the two so it goes to work to make what you're telling it congruent with reality. Hope that makes sense. In other words, achieve your goals. I hope these have been helpful and I will see you next month. Thanks. Making a return appearance here. Can we say back by popular demand? Lindsay Adams. Thank you. Who is president of the Global Speakers Federation. And one of the things that I have failed to take advantage of when I go overseas is the Global Speakers Network. Explain what that is and how it can benefit uh, all of us around the globe when we're traveling to a different region or a different country. Okay. Global Speakers Network is a network designed specifically for those people who speak internationally. So if you speak outside your home country on two occasions per year, you're eligible to join the Global Speakers Network. It, well, we charge uh, uh, a pittance of a fee, 65 bucks uh, US per year. And for that, we're going to give you huge value. We run face-to-face Global Speakers Network meetings prior to most international conventions. So that usually takes the form of uh, a half-day workshop in the afternoon and then a social function in the evening so you can catch up with your buddies informally. We send out a regular newsletter that goes out monthly with tips, tools and ideas about working internationally, things you need to look out for, um, latest airline trends, um, latest hotspots in the world in terms of business opportunities. And it's an opportunity to find out about best practice in terms of working in other countries. Because mostly we know about our own country, but we don't always know what's happening in the country that we want to work in. For example? Well, for example, uh, I do a lot of work in Asia. The first time I went to Asia and ran a program, I came home and I said to my wife, you know what, if they don't invite me back again, it may not be a bad thing. Because I, I went there, I was so naive, I didn't research the customs, how to deal with the people in the room. And I have learned so much. And these days with the Global Speakers Network, if I'm traveling to a new country, I simply send out an email on our chat room and I'll be swamped with advice, ideas of how to conduct myself, how to present business cards, how to shake hands, how to address women. Sure. And and, and let's even mention a couple of those just so members who have not traveled. For example, in Asia, you present your business card and your credit card with two hands. With two hands. Uh, They don't open their gifts in your presence. Yeah. Shaking hands, what is appropriate that you've learned? Shaking hands uh, with men only, usually. Some Mm -hmm. women will shake hands, but not all. So if a woman wishes to shake your hand, she will offer her hand first. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a bit of a, you've got to watch what's going to happen. Watch what you do with your finger. Don't point. Watch how you motion to come here. You know? uh, most definitely. And with the business card, make sure that when the business card is passed to you, you accept it with both of your hands and you read it. You study it carefully front and back so that you actually are genuinely interested in what's written on their card. Because mostly in our country, in Australia, we hand across business cards, you slip it into your pocket and, you know, everybody goes, sure, fine, not a problem. So, yes, we've got to be very uh, careful of some of the issues internationally. If someone wants to join the network, where should they go to sign up? Go to our website, uh, globalspeakersfederation.com, and uh, the registration forms there. It's really simple. We'll take your credit card, and uh, you're in. If I'm going to be a speaking star, I'll have to fly first class. 
I'll be smug and coy, avoiding eyes as the little people pass. Cause everyone around must know just who I are, baby, if I'm gonna be a speaking star. I'm gonna be a speaking star. Last month on Voices of Experience, we told you how Molly Cox performed her starfish story at the summer convention while dressed as a mermaid. Well, also participating in full costume on our Night of a Thousand Starfish was Ron Culberson, who came to the stage dressed in Shakespearean garb, complete with tights. What saith, we listen to young Ron's yonder rendition of the starfish story. I think it's time to class this place up. Ladies and gentlemen, Sire Ron Culbertson. What light from yonder wave did break? In the winter, a score, a fortnight, and a convention ago. Yes, my dear Yorick winced. A man was walking by the sea. Line. There. There. Line, thee, he, oh, give me the bloody script. Thank you, Knave. There he gazed upon a sight that from that day forward would haunt his sleep. Whence he would wake out of the darkness shouting, Out, damn starfish, out! <laughs> On that beach he saw a poor orphan child tossing sea creatures into their indigo layers, one after another followed by another, but further after that which preceded the latter, he began again with several, one at a time, followed by yet one more. The old man grabbed the boy by the forearm and saith, what is the method to your madness, lad? God bringeth the starfish from the depths of the sea and delivers it upon the shore where we, where mortals, gaze upon it, but do not dare interfere. <laughs> Yet ye doth tosseth it back. The child turned and replied, to be or not to be, that is this poor creature's quandary. Alas, poor York, what mysterious peak of work is man, or in that case a boy, that he actually think that a mere mortal could defy the very work of God, that just because he conceiveth and believeth. that he actually could achieveth. <laughs> an end greater than the Almighty, as if a chicken were placed in an eagle's nest. 
would one day believeth that it could soar, or as if the only difference between try and triumph was but a bit of oomph. It was foolish musings, and the child was living a lie, a lie not unlike the one my grandfather told me of a ship on which he was a captain. On his journey to battle, a torch was seen from the scaffold of a ship in the distance. A collision was certain, and yet not one cubit would the ship give way. After great attempts to warn the approaching ship of certain destruction, my grandfather prepared to ram the vessel in a gallant death upon the sea. But nay, there was no need to consume the ship by force, for the ship was not a ship at all, but alas, only a lighthouse. <laughs> a beacon of safety and my grandfather a fool. <laughs> this lad, like my grandfather, was the very face of madness, Yorick. He appeared to be unaware of the insanity in which he was contained, for as you know, a frog placed in boiling water <laughs> will certainly leap, yet the same frog placed in cold water will stay until its death as the fire increaseth. That poor boy, as the frog, ignored the danger of his madness as he tossed and tossed and tossed with craisins in his eyes. <laughs> he declareth, I will toss these starfish into the sea and it will make a difference. The old man laughed heartily as sputal flew from his nostrils. <laughs> For he knew the futility of this futileness. <laughs> Boy, you jester, you fool, you idiot, you cannot possibly make a difference. For the creatures on this beach, as the multitude of sands in the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. <laughs> There are too many to count for you, for me, for anyone less than the Creator himself. You will never make a difference. The boy turned to the old man, and his face was afire, now heart full of passion and blind with vision. <laughs> he now knew he had given birth to a signature story. <laughs> He raises his fist to the heavens with starfish steady in hand. He drew back, and with the swiftness of a stallion, he slung the creature into the sea. He turned as if reflecting the very face of God and saith, It hath made a difference to that one. The old man forlorn, but with a heart that beat anew, looked at the boy and wept, yes. Yes, yes, and that foolish old man, poor Yorick, was I.
The story will be available on parchment in the back of the room. So let's spend a little time talking about Ron Culberson's performance. And, of course, this is awkward because you're sitting right here with David Glickman and I. Uh, you guys were my partners in crime putting this program together. Uh, Men in tights. David, it's an uncomfortable thing to see. Was he funny or not? <laughs> he was hilarious. The, the visual of Ron coming up to the stage in tights, which, again, your VOE audience couldn't see that. That's why the laughs are so huge in the beginning. But Ron has this great ability to pull off a deadpan and serious uh, delivery with what he does. Take that a step further, he put Shakespearean language in there, and he kept doing takes, takes meaning looks, to the audience. Right. And you just combine all those elements together. It was a magnificent performance piece because he just he put all these elements together that just kept ratcheting up how funny it got. Well, it was also genius in your part, Ron, from the get-go. Uh, February of 2009 was when we first decided to do this. And you immediately decided that you were going to put the lighthouse story in, another <laughs> stolen, bastardized, <laughs> poorly told story with this. And then you, you added more and more stories. Yeah, you know... This was my greatest fear, was that everybody would think of this, because to me it seems so obvious. We're taking one overused story, so why not integrate every overused story that you've ever heard a motivational speaker tell? And ironically, nobody used any of those. And I was shocked by that, because, again, in my mind, that seemed like a, a logical way to go. But um, it, to me, it just, it just exaggerated everything we were doing. To, and then to do it seriously, I think, makes it, makes it even more fun. And I think the lesson we all learn is that sometimes when men are in private, they like to wear the stretchy pants. <laughs> Joining me once again is NSA President and Chief of Engineer Phil Van Hooser. And Phil, congratulations. Your team, I think, did a great job in November at the... Uh, conference in Phoenix. I was there and, and really enjoyed it. I think for the benefit of our listeners, could you give a little background about what really goes into putting on the various conferences and conventions that NSA holds every year? Jared, a lot of NSA members may not realize the work of those who serve on the NSA conference and convention planning committees. When I tell you that these folks work solid for two years in planning one of these events, believe me, I'm not exaggerating. The primary responsibilities of these teams, of course, is to plan and provide exceptional educational content and programming for the gatherings. But depending upon the venue, it's not at all unusual for these teams to pick three or four or maybe even five dozen different speakers and concurrent session presenters for a three- to four-day conference or convention. In some ways, believe it or not, that's the easiest of their tasks. After all, we know that NSA is home to the finest content experts on virtually any subject topic imaginable. Now, I know it's one thing to do like you've done for many years and be a part of the board and be that type of volunteer, but you've got an incredible group of volunteers that have been working on this for two years. Who are some of those folks that are involved with all this planning? Well, first of all, you are right. They are incredible, and I am so appreciative to have the team we have. The team that just headed up our Phoenix Fall Conference, for example, was chaired by Ellie Vallis, with significant support from Stephanie Angelo. The team that's working on the Nashville Winter Conference that's coming up is Chairman Mark Levin and his ABLE Vice Chairs, Liz Weber and Monica Wolford. Both the conferences and the annual convention 
this year at least, are headed up by Mark Mayberry, who as we speak is hard at work in preparation for the 2010 NSA convention, which will be in Orlando. Mark is working very closely with his team, which includes Jolene Brown, CSP, and Mary Beth Kuzmeski. So tell me about the hard part. How do they go about finding the right people for each of these meetings? Well, the hard part is picking who will be the best general session and concurrent session speakers for these various events, obviously. Of course, virtually all of us would welcome the opportunity to be offered a main stage general session slot at a convention. But we're always looking for fresh faces, timely subjects, and of course, exceptional content. Though the booking of our programs for this year is nearing completion, I would still encourage anyone who's interested in being considered as a presenter at some future conference or convention to respond with proposals for consideration, and they can send those to NSA National Headquarters at their convenience. As 2009 draws to a close, many of you around the world are celebrating various religious and cultural holidays. So to all of you, we extend our blessings and season's greetings. So was 2009 what you imagined? If it was, beautiful. If it wasn't, December gives you an opportunity to reflect and plan for 2010. What will 2010 hold for you? It can be anything you imagine. The first thing you need to do is open your mind to the endless possibilities. For Voices of Experience, I'm Jared Bro. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.